All right, for those of you who have not been in here, what we've been doing is trying, y'all are the beta group. And so I'm trying to keep you abreast of how things are going. I hope by the end of next week to have the rest of the year's reading plan put together. I'm just fine-tuning it right now. What it means is, if you've actually been following along and muttering under your breath at me for some of the long reading days, I've messed up. And you've actually read more than you need to read so far. So the last half for you guys will be a lot lighter than it will be when this book, uh, when the Bible eventually comes out for uh, publication in 2015. Uh, because I, I, I messed up. Sorry. So, with that in mind, we're still rambling through. And for those who may not have been here, what we've done is taken the Gospel of John, and we've worked through it. And now we're taking the the book of Acts. We're working through the history of the Holy Spirit in the church. And then we will take the book of Revelation. And along with the reading each day that comes from, sequentially, John, and then Acts now, and ultimately Revelation when we get to November, We're supplementing the day's reading with the rest of the Bible so that you've got the passages from the rest of the Bible to put into context what it is you're reading. Sometimes that makes it easy for you to follow along and read like right now. Sometimes it makes it quite difficult. The challenge for many of us is going to be when we get to the book of Revelation You'll find almost every clause in Revelation is taken out of the Old Testament in one place or another. And it explains, it it gives you an idea of some of the symbolism and some of the inherent meaning in those phrases. As we get to that, I think you'll find it enjoyable, but also a bit challenging, which will make it very important for you to come to class. Because the sermons are coming from the main text, which is the John, Acts, and Revelation, Whereas class is over the contextual supplemental readings. And through this reading plan, you wind up reading the entire Bible, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. But you're reading it in a, in a different format than, uh, to my knowledge, has been done before. And so that's where we are. Now, as I was putting this reading program together, I was uh, appreciative... It doesn't sound right to say I was really thankful for the stoning of Stephen because I'm not thankful for the stoning of Stephen. But um, I I was very appreciative of this speech that Stephen gave before he was stoned. If we go and we look at Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, Stephen basically is called in front of the, the, the council, the Sanhedrin, for uh, 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 crimes against the Jewish law and the temple. And his crimes supposedly consisted of, of falsely denigrating Moses, falsely denigrating the temple, while lifting up this Jesus fella, who, according to the witnesses, was bent on destroying the temple. And to the Jew who incorrectly thought that God actually dwelt at times in the temple, the idea that you would destroy the house of God certainly was able to rile up your juices, especially a zealot like Paul, who viewed it incumbent upon himself to rise up and defend God. Now, what happens in the process of this is we have, and, and, and Chris, you'll excuse me as I speak this way, Luke recording. Chris and I had a discussion of whether or not Luke wrote Acts. I'm still on my side on that. He's still on his side. God knows, though. And neither one of us think that if the other one's right, then we're in trouble. Our faith is not dependent on who the penman was for the book of Acts. But Luke writes Acts in a way where he takes the speech of Stephen and condenses it down. He condenses it down to a four to five minute speech, depending upon how fast you read. Now, Stephen would have been given all of his time to make the presentation. 
We can assume the presentation could have taken quite some time. I don't know how long. As a lawyer, uh, the last case I tried, I was allowed three months to put the evidence on. I'm assuming Stephen did his in a day based on reading the text. Um, you, the, the history is replete. It's actually shorter now than it used to be. Before the TV days, lawyers had lots of time. The Leopold trial was one where the closing argument, Clarence Darrow argued for 12 hours in closing argument in that case. Leopold and Loeb, famous murder trial out of Chicago. So we don't know in great detail everything Stephen said. But we know the subjects and we know the themes that he covered by the account given by Luke. So it's been marvelous for the context Bible because within the confines of Stephen's speech, we've been able to cover and will continue to cover a good bit of Old Testament narrative, historical narrative. For example, we've got a number of days that are wrapped up in the verse 45. Acts 7.45 says, Our fathers, in turn, brought the tent of the wilderness, actually it says it, brought it in with Joshua, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. Now, the reference here that Stephen's making is that God's presence in the tent of the wilderness... The tent of meeting, the tent of, not wilderness, witness, the tent of meeting. God's presence there was never a presence that was specified to one geographic locale. It was one that was made in the wilderness. It was one that traveled with the Israelites. It was one that that went into the promised land when the foreign nations were dispossessed. And it was one that stayed there until temple construction. And in verse 45, we've stopped it there. But verse 46, Stephen is not making the mistake of thinking David built the temple. He'll make the point that David wanted to but didn't in a moment. But right now we pause because there's a period of time in here that if it's one of those time periods where there was further elucidation on the history by Stephen then Luke has condensed it out. It certainly has historical significance that, that, that vibrates the same themes that Stephen is giving to the people, to the council, as he's delivering his defense. What Stephen was doing, Stephen was using his Bible, the Old Testament, to explain the purpose and the work of God in the person of Jesus. So, he's able, Stephen is able to take his Bible and speak to the Sanhedrin council and explain the work of God in the person of Jesus through the pages of his scripture. Stephen does so in a way that also puts into a special context what the Sanhedrin has charged Stephen with and implicitly charged Jesus with and the judgment that is going to be coming. Scholars debate whether or not Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. Seems to be an indication he might have been. But there are some problems with the idea of how we understand the Sanhedrin makeup of thinking Paul was a member. So scholars aren't determinative of that. But almost all of the scholars recognize that Paul was at least in attendance for the trial. Because the passage that seems to indicate Paul might have been a member of the Sanhedrin can also be interpreted of just Paul was present for the debate in front of the council. For the trial. We know that Paul's holding the cloaks of those who are stoning Stephen, which Paul, as a zealous and righteous Jew, Pharisee, could not do if Paul were not personally assured of the appropriateness of the penalty. 
And so Paul, I like to look at Stephen's speech and I like to look at these backup passages and try to envision myself in the shoes of Paul. If I had heard this pre-Damascus Road and I had decided that this was wrong and false and blasphemous, how would those memories have echoed in my brain once I met Jesus for real? It's an interesting thing. So keep it in your brain while we look at this. So I won't have time to get through all of the readings for the week. You've got them in the handout. I forgot that this was going to be a week where I had some language scholars here. So it gives me a chance to throw in some stuff I didn't have in the written lesson. We'll just throw it out there. Judges chapter 5 is the song of Deborah. It just tacks on to the reading last week. Bottom line is Deborah and Jabin, they went out there and they did real good. And they, they, uh, 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 not Jabin, Jabin is the chieftain of Hazor, the king of Hazor that they beat. But uh, Deborah does that. And, and we had that piece of fabric last week. The story from there changes to the story of Gideon and the Midianites. And there's a logical transition here. If you ever want to get nitty gritty and get down into judges, and, and, and you're someone like James Hammond, where's James? Here you are. Who's going to sit there and work the chronologies out on a spreadsheet and try and figure out if the years work. They don't. Okay? And the reason why is judges is not put together as a chronology. There wasn't one judge over all 12 tribes that lasted until that person died, and then another judge, and then another judge. They're not sequential. Israel was spread out. Their internet was down almost all the time. They had very little communication going from the northern to the southern at times. They had mountain villages. So you'll have judges that spring up in different areas. And they can be contemporaneous. They can be uh, at different times. Some of them do follow others, and it's clear. Others do not. So don't sit there and nitpick that. But when you consider the song of Deborah ends and the story of Gideon begins, there's an interesting thread that weaves those together. And it's just an idea that permeates the book of Judges. God has a victorious hand that reaches out for the needy who seek him. God has a victorious hand that reaches out to the needy who seek him. The corollary, one of the corollaries to that is, when the Israelites are worshiping the foreign gods... They get invaded by the people who worship the same foreign god. There's a real delicious justice in that. It's as if God says, fine, you want to worship Melech? Then let the Ammonites come on in because they're the people of Melech. Fine, you want to worship the Canaanite deities? Then let the Canaanites go ahead and make you subservient to them. But if you choose to worship Yahweh, and Yahweh alone, then Yahweh will be your God and you will be his people. And there is no other God that can stand before him and no other people that can stand before you. And it's an idiot simple lesson that I would laugh about their inability to understand and live in if I didn't have to struggle with it myself. So with that, Gideon. I look, let's just take a moment and look at the text of Gideon. Let's, let's do it that way. We won't go through the whole thing because we don't have time. But, but in the framework of this, this is just really cool to me, the way it's written. I am absolutely convinced not only does the writer of Scripture have a sense of humor, but God does as well. I think we see it reflected in the teachings of Jesus, his use of absurdity and irony. It's as hard as a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, as a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's not a reference to a gate. It's just hilarious. It's got all of those poor Israelites elbowing each other. (laughs) That's a a rich uncle Mordecai. (laughs) Yeah, he's going to have trouble. Um, 
It's just funny. See the sense of humor in this as we're reading through it. It's serious material, but see the sense of humor. So we're in Judges chapter 6. Now the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian... The people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Now, the Midianites were a nomadic people. That means they're not on their own ground planting their own crops and eating the fruit of their harvest. They are nomads who have tents and people and, and, and animals. And what would happen is when the, the harvest comes in, If it's the barley harvest, they go in with their animals and they eat all the barley in the field that's ripe and they scavenge and they they take everything the Israelites have. If it's the grape harvest, they go in and they take the grapes. If it's the wheat harvest, they go in and they take the wheat. And all of the Israelites are scared little whimpering people who just go hide in the caves because those mean Midianites are coming in and they'll kill us if we're still around. And so the Israelites cower in fear while the Midianites come in, take all that they want, and then they move on down the road till the next harvest time. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They'd encamp against them. They'd devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and they'd leave nothing, no sheep, ox, or donkey. They'd come with all their livestock, their tents. They'd come like locusts in numbers. You couldn't even count them. They laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Isn't it interesting? Uh, uh, One of the lines to an old Amy Grant song that I really liked was basically a plea for God to help her remember to cry out for help even when the skies are blue. Don't make me wait. Lord, please don't make me wait till things get really bad to cry out for help. Because you know God will make things really bad so you cry out for help. I'd rather just cry out for help all the time. Help! When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. He says to them, thus says, and and again, remember, we're seeing Yahweh. All capitals, a big capital L and lower capital O-R-D is the translator's way of telling us that this is Yahweh. This is the the name that God gave himself to Moses. So Yahweh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hands who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. And if you're reading it in the Hebrew, the eyes on all of those. The translators don't put it in there because it's inherent in the word. But it's, I did this, 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 I did this. And then I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Finally, you got something to do. After all the eyes, I said to you, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you've not obeyed my voice. Now, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. That's in the land of Winfrey. (laughs) Oh, no. It's got an extra H in there. Never mind. I missed that perfect recall, Bruce. Sat under the terebinth at Ophrah which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, 
While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now that's an absurd picture if you know what they were doing. The way they would typically beat out the wheat or thresh the wheat is they would take a big clearing of land, 20 to 40 feet circle. They'd remove all of the stones, they'd wet it down, and then sweep it clean. And then they'd pile up the wheat in the middle, they'd hook up a threshing sled behind an ox or a donkey, and then they'd have the ox and the donkey just walk in circles. And they'd feed the wheat from the center into the track where they're walking. And that's going to thresh the wheat. It's going to remove the outer hulls. It's going to crush it. It's going to separate the roots off, the dirt off, and all the rest that came from the the picking. Contrast that to what they did in a wine press. A wine press is where they press the grapes so that they can gather the grape juice. For their grape jelly and wine. Now, you can't do that on the floor or the ground. Where's all the grape juice going to go? In the ground. You're going to be left with the seeds and the pulp and the skin. So a wine press was something they had to do out of rock. Because the rock would hold the juice. And they would do it in a way where they'd cut a little funnel in the rock. Or a little, uh, uh, a little, uh, little dribble hole or whatever. A trough. Trough. And it would drain down into the catch-em bags. That's what we called them in Lubbock. I don't know what they called them. So, get this, this means that it's usually, it's not out there in the open. You see, the threshing floors in the open because they're going to want the wind ultimately when they start throwing up what they've, they've threshed to blow away the shaft. So they want it out in the open. But the wine press is over in the hilly area where the stones are. And they don't have a huge, it's not 20 by 40 feet. It's a smaller area because you've got to accumulate the mass. Uh, I mean, just watch the women in the TV show Monk on the episode where they're stepping on the grapes. They're doing it in buckets because you've got to keep it in tight to get the effect. So Gideon doesn't have the ox or the donkey or the sled doing the threshing. He's beating it out himself, hidden in the hill in the little bitty wine press doing it. Which tells you, number one, he doesn't have much wheat And it tells you, number two, he's scared to death. He's doing it in hiding. Gideon's beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it and him from the Midianites. Midianites, excuse me. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, hey, muscles. The Lord is with you, strong boy. The, the Lord is with you, oh mighty man of valor. Hey, courageous. God's with you. Now, God's just said they don't do what I say. They're fearing the, the people. They're not following me. They're fearing the people. By the way, if Stephen's telling this story, do you think God's ministering to Stephen while he tells it? Do you think maybe Stephen's not fearing those people, but he's fearing the Lord? The angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, muscles. And Gideon said, please, sir, if Yahweh is with us, why is all this happening? Where... Are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, didn't Yahweh bring you up from Egypt? Yahweh has forsaken us. He's not with us. 
Yahweh has given us into the hand of the Midianites. And the Lord, Yahweh, turned to him. Now, some people read that and they say, ah, that angel was an incarnation of Yahweh God. Uh, I don't know, I wasn't there. But it could easily mean also within the Hebrew that the messenger of the Lord is speaking the word of the Lord. And so when the messenger of the Lord says it, the Lord says it. It's the, the speaker. You know, when I listen to Bruce Springsteen sing to me, it's not really him. It's the speaker making the noise. But I'll tell you, hey, that's Bruce Springsteen. Same type principle. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. Koach in the Hebrew. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. You're the chicken who's hiding in the hills to thresh his wheat because you're scared to death of what they're doing. But he doesn't call him a, a, a zazor, a chicken. He calls him a man of valor and a man of strength. And he says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Don't I send you? And um, <laughs> this mighty man of valor says, uh, how can I do that? The mighty man of valor says, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. The mighty man of valor says, I am the least in my father's house. The mighty man of valor, Mr. Courageous, says, I can't do that. And the Lord says to him, but I will be with you. I will be with you and you'll strike the Midianites as one man. Ikadish as one man. It's not a huge uh, bunch of nomads in all of their tents. It's just one man. You'll smite them all. One man. And he said, um, I'd like to think about this for a minute. If I found favor in your eyes, show me a sign it's you who speak with me. Now, don't depart from me here until I come to you. I'm going to bring you a present. I'm going to put it to you. Will you stay here till I get back? The angel says, yes, I'll stay here. So Gideon goes in and he, he kills a young goat. It doesn't say he kills it, but you get the impression he did. If not, they had leftovers. But he gets a young goat and he makes out of a good bit of flour, half a bushel of flour, a lot of flatbread. Now, the odds are he's planning on feeding his family. This isn't just all for the, the angels not looking that like uh, you don't get the impression that the angel's about to eat all that food. But he makes a whole lot. Which if he's threshing in the wine floor, he doesn't necessarily have a whole lot to make. So it's, it's significant that he's got the right heart. So he takes it out there. And when he gets out there with it, he presents it to the angel. The angel's got a staff and touches it. Says, put it on the, the rock there. Then touches it and it's gone. And that's a pretty good sign. So look what Gideon, the man of valor, does. Gideon perceived he was the angel of the Lord. Gideon said, alas, O Lord God. And that's uh, written that way. Now you've got the capital G-O-D with Lord. That's Adonai Yahweh. That means Yahweh, Yahweh is my God. Okay. Oh, Lord God, now I have seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. And God says, just chill out. Relax. Shalom. Peace be to you. Don't be Scared, oh man of valor. You're not going to die by see. I came to you. So Gideon builds an altar there to the Lord. He calls it Yahweh is peace, Yahweh shalom. To this day, it still stands there at Oprah. Then that night, Yahweh said to him, whoops, let me turn this a little bit. That night, Yahweh said to him, take your father's bull, the second bull that's seven years old. Pull down, look at this. This is really going to get him in his dad's will. 
Pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Cut down the Asherah, that's a pole for the goddess Asherah, that's beside it. Build an altar to Yahweh your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Take the second bull, kill your daddy's bull as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you cut down. Cut down the pole to the goddess that your daddy's worshiping and use it as kindling to kill your daddy's bull and sacrifice to Yahweh. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But he was too afraid of his family and everybody who lived there, so he did it at night so nobody would know it was him. O mighty man of valor, do you see the humor? This guy's a chicken. He's scared of everything. God, I mean, God does the miraculous sign. And then his response is just one of, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this, but let's do it at night when nobody's looking. Because God said he did give the Midianites to us, but God didn't say anything about protecting me from my dad and the people of the town. So when the men of the town rose early the next morning, the altar of Baal was broken down. The Asherah beside it was cut down. The second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said, who's done this? After they searched and inquired, someone ratted him out. Gideon, the son of Joash, did this. So the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son. We're going to kill him. He's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. And Joash said to them, to everyone who stood against him, are you going to contend for Baal? Are you going to fight for Baal? You got to stand up for your God? Is your God not strong enough to stand up for himself? If Baal is all this powerful, if he's the God of thunder, if he's, if he's, the, if he's the man, then you don't need to worry about it. If he's a God, let him contend for himself. After all, it's his altar that God busted. So on that day, Gideon was called Jerubaal, Yerubaal, which means let Baal, Yerub, contend or, or fight or stand up against him because he broke down his altar. Now, the story continues, but you get the gist of the story from this. Uh, uh, ultimately, ah, there's one other thing we ought to add, because we've got some linguistic scholars in here. And we've got James Hammond, who puts all this stuff on a spreadsheet. Um, Gideon assembles an, uh, a fighting force. They might call it an army, but I'm not sure army works with our idea of what an army is. I'm not sure army works. Um, you know, we're reminded in Romans, Paul asks the question, what benefit is there to being a Jew in light of the fact that Gentiles and Jews are all of the same tree once the Gentiles are grafted in? And the response that's given by Paul is lots of advantages to being a Jew, lots of blessings. For starters, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And we know that historically to be true. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What God put forth were the words of God. And they were the oracles of God. And they were precise, and they were accurate, and God makes no mistakes. But it's something that God entrusted to the Jews... And over history, the Jews wrote it down. Sometimes they passed it verbally. They wrote it down. They passed it verbally. They wrote it down. They made copies. They made copies of copies and copies of copies. And they did a really good job so that we can still read and hear the word of God today. But in the process, sometimes you can look at the manuscripts and tell that they made a mistake here or they made a mistake there in the copying. The words of God, the oracles of God, were entrusted to the Jews. 
Since that time, they've been entrusted to many people, and scholars are so good at putting it together that we can read with confidence. But there are some things that happen in the process, and I think we see perhaps one of them here. So Gideon puts together the army. The Lord says to Gideon, now we're in chapter 7, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. You've got too big of an army. If you go with that big of an army, Israel's going to think they did it on their own. So here's what I want you to tell the people. Anybody who's scared, go home. Go fast. Run away. So 22,000 of the people left and 10,000 remained. Whoops. Now, here's a little problem for the, the, the translators and a problem with the way, actually, it's not even the way it was written. It's the way it's translated. You see, the, the, the original Hebrew didn't have any vowel signs. They don't, they don't really have, they have some letters that substitute as vowels, but they don't really have vowels. They don't really have vowel signs. So the Jewish scholars who put the vowel signs on much later, in fact, after the New Testament, in the Middle Ages, the Masoretic scholars were concerned people were forgetting how to pronounce these things. They add some different vowel signs, but if you just look at the Hebrew, what that Hebrew says is 22 olives. And an olive is an A, L, and then a, a fe sound. Actually, it'd be a final fe, so I miswrote it. But um, an olive, 22 olives. An olive can mean a thousand, but an olive can also mean a clan or a fighting force, or a group. In fact, earlier in chapter 6, when Gideon says, don't I have, aren't, I'm scared? He says, um, ah, verse 15, here we go. Chapter 6, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. It's the same word. He doesn't mean my thousand is the weakest. He means my clan. So this is, there were about 22 fighting forces that left. 22 groups that left. 22 contingent forces that left. And 10 contingent forces that stayed. How many in a force? Is it a full thousand? We don't know. It doesn't say, and we shouldn't, the translators should not bind us with this. They do the same thing in the Exodus. 600,000 Jews leaving, or men leaving. 600 olives, clans, groups, what left. So anyway, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Oops. So I want you to take them down to the water and we're going to do this test. We're going to take the ones that take the water and drink it like this, but the ones who just stick their head in the water, they need to go home and learn hygiene. So they leave and they go home. The bottom line is, is it's a marvelous story how God works it. And, and, and Gideon is successful and, and the Midianites are routed and, and it's a good story. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, here's where we go from there. That was the reading for that day. It included also, but, but I want us to, cons uh, something else, but I want us to consider the implications for Stephen and the council. A, I don't think Stephen's afraid. You can't recount this story and have fear. B, do you really think that Stephen, when he's being accused of Jesus saying the temple will be destroyed, Stephen's got no qualms telling a story about idols being destroyed. Because even the Bible made it clear that Israel could be guilty and the prophets made it clear of Israel's guilt in assuming the temple itself trumped God. You don't worship the temple. You worship the God to whom the temple is dedicated. And that problem was there. So anyway, we keep going. Now, Gideon, bless his heart, had a massive concubine. He had lots of wives in different towns and everything. He let this popularity thing go to his head. Now, I, I, he got over the fear factor. 
because most men would be scared to death to have 70 women telling him to take out the garbage. But he gets over the fear factor. He's got 70 wives, and among all of his kids, or not 70 wives, 70 sons from lots of different wives, among all of these is this uh, concubine kid named Abimelech. Now, Gideon is never called a king. He's not a king. He's a judge. But he names Abimelech, or maybe his mother names Abimelech, the mother names Abimelech, Abimelech, which means my father is king. Avimelech. And so he's got the name, and Avimelech decides, hey, my father's king. My father dies. Time for me to be king. So from Shechem, he calls in all of his brothers, and he's hired his mercenary troops in the meanwhile, and he kills them all. Except Jotham. Jotham escapes. He's the youngest. And Avimelech is up there and Avimelech says, Aha, I'm king now. Life is great. Now here's a picture of what this area looks like today. Shechem was in between two mountains. And the mountain as we're looking, the mountain to the left is Mount Gerizim. That's Mount Ebal to the right. The other mountain, I didn't label it, but that's Mount Ebal. There is a natural amphitheater there. You can stand at this, there's a rock outcropping on Mount Gerizim. You can stand there today and you can yell and you are not only heard down below in Shechem, you're heard over on Mount Ebal. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing thing. And so Jotham, the youngest, he goes to Mount Gerizim Shechem has declared uh, uh, Avimelech king, and he shouts out a parable to them. It's uh, we don't have time, but it's really worth reading. Um, it's in it's in uh, uh, Judges chapter nine. The parable's really kind of cool. Let's just yeah, let's just take time. Which just means y- y'all know the story of Samson. I uh, don't have much to add, except stay away from Delilah. Delilah, by the way, in Hebrew, Lila is the word for night. And Delilah, the way it's said in Hebrew, basically sounds like she of the night. I mean, it's, she was the original woman of the night. Just stay away from her. Okay. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and he cried aloud and he said, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And he tells him a fable. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. Olive trees, beautiful trees. They they sustain, they give life, they give olives, they give olive oil. One of the main sustenances of Israel, the olive tree. It was used in trade. It was used, the Philistines wanted it because they couldn't grow them well on the coast. It's one of the reasons the Philistines liked the, 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 the area of Israel. It was The oil was used for lamps, um, uh, cooking, uh, anointing, very valuable. It says to the olive tree, rain over us. But the olive tree says, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? In other words, I'm too busy working for the common good. I'm not going to be the king. So the tree said to the fig tree, hey, Would you come reign over us? Now, fig trees were a main source of nourishment. They grow prolifically. They can grow in a bush form that's really big. I mean, bush tree all the way down, all the way up 20 feet. They grow very wide. You get figs not once, but all summer long. They're a marvelous tree. The figs are sweet. Mm. You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said, Am I going to leave my sweetness and my good fruit to just go rule over the trees? I'm too busy doing good things to be the king. So the tree said to the vine, come reign over us. Great vines. But the vine said, am I going to leave behind my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? I'm too busy doing what I'm made to do. I'm serving, I'm ministering, I'm providing. 
So all the trees said to the bramble. Now the bramble is a thorn bush. These are the little bitty things that grow up around in the fields. And the farmers are always trying to get rid of them because they catch fire real easy. They're used for kindling, in fact, to start fires. But the fear is, is that they'll catch fire and burn down an orchard or they'll burn down valuable trees. And so they're gathered up. They're used for kindling. They're thorn bushes. They, they, when you do it, you got to be careful. The thorns get in your hands. You Think blackberry bushes without the fruit. And you'll have a pretty good picture. You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you're anointing me king, then come and take refuge in my shade. Okay, this is an absurd fable. Big tree, little bramble thorn bush. And the thorn bush says, Come get in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon because they catch fire so easy. He's really making fun of his half-brother and what they've done. He ends it with this. If you've acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, if you've dealt well with my father Gideon, Jerubbaal, and his house, and you've done to him as his deeds deserve, Remember, this is my dad who did all these things. If, verse 19, let's keep going, you've acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and all of his house this day, then rejoice. I hope everything's hunky-dory. But when you murdered the 69 brothers I've got, when you've murdered them, if you didn't, whoops, you can't see it. But if not, sorry, if not, let fire come out from Avimelech, your little bramble bush, and let it devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, another little town that made him king, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Avimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled. Scared. Avimelech dies. Ultimately, I mean, the whole thing falls apart. The people are bad. The the bramble burns up the town. Shechem's gone. It's a mess. It just happens the way God says. Now, here's the problem we've got. If we go back to the PowerPoint. We can consider the implications for Stephen and the council because the council, if we, yeah, the council is is sitting in some rulership authority. And I got to tell you, Stephen's got all the boldness in the world. But he's not going to run away and hide. He's going to stay right there and proclaim the Lord that he knows. Now, with that, speaking of idiocy, I wish I had time to tell you the, the next story and just work through it with you. Um, Jephthah makes a rash vow. He's another judge that comes up. And he's scared to fight, but he decides he's going to fight. He's an illegitimate son. His mom was a prostitute. He's got a rough childhood. Blah, 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 blah. And then... He comes up and finally is hired to be the hero of the town he got run out of because he's got a bunch of thugs that work for him, okay? And so he comes in to do it, and Jephthah uh, um, makes this rash vow. says, I'm going to go fight for the Lord, and when I come back, if God gives me victory, I'll burn as an offering the first thing to come out of my house. Idiot. I mean, come on. And, and, and people read the Bible and they try to, well, Jephthah, you know, that's not what he meant. Oh, yeah, he, he meant it. He's an idiot. He's not holding him up as a model for us to follow. Except don't do what he did. Don't make a rash vow before the Lord. That's just stupid. And if you make a rash vow and he comes home after winning and his daughter comes out to his only daughter to say, Dad, congratulations, and she's the first thing out of the door, Yeah, lament and mourn, but you just wonder who else he was thinking might come out first to greet him that he was willing to kill. It was a stupid vow, and when he made it and he realizes it's his daughter, while some interpreters will look at it and say, well, he let her off and just let her become a virgin and and it just doesn't read clear in the Hebrew. Oh, it reads pretty clear. 
He lets her have two months to mourn the fact that he's going to kill her, and then he kills her. To fulfill his vow to the Lord. And if I'm Stephen and I'm telling this story, I'm thinking, you think, and, and if I'm Paul hearing this, reflecting back on the stoning of Stephen, thinking I was fulfilling my vow to the Lord to be zealous for his kingdom, the zeal of a Pharisee, I'd be thinking, man, I'm an idiot. I was an idiot. Jephthah was an idiot. Jephthah should have fallen down in front of the Lord and said, Lord, I made a rash vow. I'm so sorry. What can I do to fix it? I repent. I confess. It's wrong for me to kill my daughter. I'm stuck. Wrong, 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 wrong. I put myself in a box. Anyway, we don't have time, but if we had time, I was going to tell you the story of Samson and Delilah. I was going to tell you the story of the Levitical priest, but instead we'll just do the points for home and we'll be done. A points for home quickly. Number one, God's victorious hand to the needy who seek him. Lord, may we be needy. We need you every hour, every minute of every day. Number two, I'm just going to work really hard on getting rid of the idiocy in my life. Where I live in fear when the God who had enough power to raise Jesus from the dead says that he is with me and his Holy Spirit indwells within me. And Jesus says there's no temple anymore because Jesus has created the temple of the body of Christ and his spirit dwells within us. Need I fear anyone or anything if I am needy and looking to God to meet my needs, then I have no fear. And hopefully I will not, we didn't have time for the story, I won't be pursuing other idols to save me. Oh, don't get me wrong. I don't get into the little clay figurines. My idols would that I have to fight are the security of money, the security of work, the security of friends and family. And if I put any of those above the security of God, I've just made them idols. And my security needs to be in God. And every way that I see His hand work, I need to give Him credit but I never need fear and I never need doubt. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you so much for the lessons that we have in Scripture and the way we're able to understand and read them in light of biblical times of Jesus and the church in light of our days today. Would you speak to us? Be our God. We do need you. Help us to see that need. And to cry to you and to look to you with all diligence. To walk in your ways. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.